You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girls down. You already know. And I said, I don't get this no premarital sex business. That's ridiculous. The message over and over, your voice doesn't matter. That voice will shut down. The choice to let go of a pregnancy is very complicated. Like everything in Handmaid's Tale she has said, I didn't make that up. It has happened somewhere in this world, and that's a fact. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today I am so excited because our guest today is truly one of my favorite character actors of all time. You probably know Anne Dowd from her terrifying portrayal of Aunt Lydia on Hulu's feminist masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale. But I actually started following her career years ago when she kept popping up in multiple roles on all of the Law & Order shows. For it. such a long time, before I even knew her name, she would appear on screen. And this show's producer, Luscious Logan, and I would just start shouting, look, it's her. It's her again. It's that amazing lady. Um, so this oh, wow. is going to be a very good episode <laughs> for me. I finally learned her name when I went to a press screening of the incredible suspense film Compliance in 2012. And I almost shouted, look, it's that Law & Order lady there in the theater <laughs> when she came on screen. And then, of course, Anne Dowd became a household name for her riveting performance as Aunt Lydia in the Hulu series The Handmaid's Tale, for which she won a very well-deserved Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series. Her latest film, a new adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's classic no novel, Rebecca, just premiered on Netflix on October 21st, and I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Anne Dowd, to our show. Yay! Oh, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, honestly. I first started noticing your work on Law & Order, but I know you didn't just hatch from an egg on the set. So <laughs> tell me about your journey towards the stellar career that you have today? Well, uh, I think uh, this might be true for many actors. The journey begins, when it began for me with the school play, uh, what's better than that, you know? Love it. <laughs> it's uh, in high school when you do your musical, mine was Guys and Dolls, um, you jump in with your cast and you realize this is one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. And there's some innocence to that in the sense that you're, you're just, you're playing. It's, it's, what if I were this person? You jump in with all the innocence that youth brings, and it's an extraordinary experience. And I remember when, when the plays would be over, the, the gloom that would, would, would descend and, and, and this true homesickness for that joy uh, and not co not connecting it to, well, let's pursue it then. Because the way I was raised, and I don't criticize my parents at all, but uh, there's no but to it, you don't do that as a way of life. You do that as a hobby. 
And so Mm -hmm. it never occurred to me, you know, that, well, then let's do this. So I went to college um, as a pre-med student to become a surgeon, which was the goal. Uh, And I lost my father when I was a senior in high school, which did a few things, one of which was the beauty of life and what grief teaches us. And that's a beautiful thing, that lesson, the preciousness of life. But also, I just thought, yes, you have to be a doctor because that's the conversation you had with your father before he died, many of them actually. But I had a beautiful roommate who lost her brother tragically in our junior year. And so the two of us really became close in another way, which is to say, with our deep understanding of grief. And in my senior year, she looked at me and she said, do you want to be a surgeon? Do you want to be a doctor? And I said, no, I I want to be an actress. She said, okay, so what are you waiting for? And then I auditioned mm-hmm. for acting school. I mean, it sounds like kind of fairy I tale, love but it's story so much. It's, it's the truth. <laughs> Just loving this. I, I hope I didn't go on too long there. But no, uh, you know, all. so that's what happened there. I mean, I did the plays in college too, and I had a tremendous acting teacher who kept it very, very simple. Uh, it's about the human. It's it's about human beings and how we interact. And so that meant we were all qualified. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's about human Well, behavior. that's one of the things that I love so much about your performances is that everybody that you play, even if they're doing truly horrific things, there's something very relatable about the women that you play. And um, there's something very profound about it because you really push the limits of that relatability in some of your roles. You know, isn't it fascinating, uh, the gifts we are given, meaning people have so often said, how do you how do you get into Lydia and how do you get out of it at the end of a day? Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I mean, I think we're all learning this in every part of our lives, that we all do things for a reason. And what is the reason? Well, it's not to be a cruel person or a... You know, she's holding on to beliefs with everything she has. Um, and when you when you play that kind of a person, it begs the question, okay, but why is the road so narrow? Why? Mm, yeah. Uh, as is true in all human behavior, I think. Um, I mean, let's look at our most recent example without becoming political. We have oh, a very as political as you want. <laughs> oh well, then I'm on hands and knees on November third. Uh, you know the the profound, for lack of a better word, illness going on there. Uh, what is narcissism? When does it become malignant? Well, we're living with it now, mm-hmm. and the effects of it are are so deeply and profoundly disturbing. Um, and so I don't know, uh, uh, to get back to Lydia, uh, for safety's sake, um, <laughs> you know, I think Margaret Atwood might p- push back and, and I would get what she's saying. She's brilliant. Uh, you know, survival, 
with Gilead. Are you kidding? Her early beginnings, Lydia's, uh, she was a she was a family court judge. And you'll see, I don't know if you've had a minute to read the Testaments, which is exploring. I have. I'm going to get to that in a little while. I have read the Testaments. You know, you realize, okay, you want to live? When, once Gilead took over, you want to live? Then you better get busy. And mm-hmm. Lydia is not the type to want to be fifth in command. It doesn't suit her. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. there's there's all of that belief uh, stuff, uh, which I believe at the core of her. No, no, no. Hold on a minute here. Um, you don't you don't you don't make decisions and decisions in family court, and then adopt the beliefs of Gilead. I, that doesn't add up for me. I think it's mm-hmm. about survival. Although the way we play the Handmaid's Tale, which which I respect and I and I love, uh, there's damage in her early past. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode about her, which I loved so much and was so grateful for her backstory and 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 uh, wonderful John Ortiz and and what could have happened there, but the shame associated with sex, the shame associated with. Uh, the bearing of one's true self uh, just just um, crippled her. Uh, shame is a powerful thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, if you yeah. don't have if you don't have someone to help you through it and say, "Hey, hang on, doll, hang on a minute here," let's have another look. It's, yeah. Please, please. Especially for women, I mean, shame oh, is God. one of the most powerful. Yeah. Uh, actors within women and i don't know why men seem to uh, maybe they experience it in a different way but i i would imagine that these days most of the feedback that you get you know from people recognizing you on the street is for a handmaid's tale because your character aunt lydia is right up there for me at least with dracula and frankenstein's monster is one of the scariest fictional characters of all time um for those who are listening to us talk about it and who are unfamiliar with the hulu show or the Margaret Atwood novel that it's based on, Handmaid's Tale happens in a dystopian, not-so-distant future where modern women are forced to become subservient second-class citizens again in a societal return to religious fundamentalism. And your character, Aunt Lydia, is in charge of sexually re-educating fertile, formerly independent women so they can become forced surrogate mothers for the infertile ruling class. And Aunt Lydia does this with steely brutality that is truly chilling to watch. Um, I think that your role would be challenging under any circumstances, but I really cannot imagine what it must have been like to start filming this show just before the 2016 election and to watch our democracy and all of our societal norms start to shift under our feet while making this show. I have to know what it has been like for you and for the rest of the cast to become symbols of a real life resistance movement in real time while making the show. Okay. Beautiful question. Before we began filming, the idea that Donald Trump would become president was a joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. I never, I thought, okay, this is hilarious. Uh, what? Yeah. Um, like Kanye I never, I didn't buy it at all. I didn't, I didn't, I thought this is a joke. What are we worried about? This cannot happen. And then we began filming and as time went on, something about it took on a level of seriousness, which was very disturbing. And I remember 
I was home in New York. Those were the days when we could go back and forth between Canada and the U.S. without a card. <laughs> I mean, I don't say that with any, uh, I, I, I don't even know what the word is. Now that is the norm. Canada has it right. Yeah. I think yeah. We um, are not doing United so States. good. Uh, they're, they're quite right to be uh, as protective as they are. Anyway, I, I was home in New York and I started to see how things were going um, election day. And I, I literally turned the television off and I went to bed. I said, this cannot be. And I'm going to wake up in the morning and it's going to be over and it's going to mm. shift. And I remember taking the newspaper out of the front door of my apartment on the floor and the huge headlines. And I was sick. Yeah. And I went to bed the day and I texted Lizzie Moss and I said what are we going to do what are we going to do and she wrote back the Latin phrase for don't let the bastards grind you down oh I love it and you know doesn't that become the truth what are you going to do go into go to bed and put the pull the sheets up over your no no stay alert resistance push back. No, this cannot happen. This has to, we have to go to the state level. We have to go to the city level. We have to do whatever we can do to preserve what we know is right. Um, what I find so deeply upsetting because, okay, to shift for a second, and listen, jump in here, because I'm just doing the talking. So you jump no, in. No, yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> Uh, this is what I learned during this pandemic and I'm grateful for it because a lot of time alone will bring you to your knees uh, because the loneliness is profound uh, and then it will teach you about true compassion not the kind where we tell it the way we want to tell it and have compassion when it's not so hard to have it but when we realize that when we are crushing another, it's about us, it's not about them. And the gift in that of trying to understand human behavior, even when we don't disagree, I think is the way through, you know? It's allowing us to let go of our prejudice, let go of our hatred, so to speak. And so when I think of those Americans who are choosing this man, why? And when I think evangelicals who nothing that this man presents has anything to do with the teachings of Jesus, in fact, the antithesis, what's going on? A pro-life, come on now. The choice to let go of a pregnancy is very complicated. You cannot choose this man because he's pro-life, which of course he isn't. He could give a shit. <laughs> right. So where am I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm I'm here for every word of it. I haven't been to a single protest march since the women's march where I did not see women dressed as handmaids. And how brilliant is that? I, it's so good. I have to know how that feels for you to see your work being part of the national conversation literally every time since the show came out. Okay. I'll tell you what, I, I, right now I have goosebumps thinking about it and it brings me to my knees in gratitude because 
I'll tell you, I was on my bike in New York City, and this is right after the first season, and I see a group of handmaids oh my gosh. walking two by two, and their heads are down in the proper way that Gilead would insist upon. And they, I, 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 I kind of screeched, I almost fell off my bike, to be honest. And, and part of me said, wait a minute, girls, I'm here. Where are you going? <laughs> oh. Did you thought, really? No, I didn't say anything. But, but the first impulse was, excuse me, who gave you permission to waltz down, you know, uh, Union <laughs> Square? Whoa. The and imagery the is piece. so powerful, though. It really delivers. Oh, my God. And Crabtree, who's the costume designer, is so flipping brilliant. But anyway, then that then when I realized, excuse me, that that this of course was part of the. Well, frankly, I think it was Hulu, uh, which doesn't mean it isn't good. <laughs> it was great, meaning it, it wasn't a protest, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you here. just thought it was a protest oh. because it, it it whenever you see that uh, people dress Power like that, of you it. immediately think they're making they're sending a message. You know, that's it. And so I just literally the gratitude that just flooded me of because it became part of a resistance of well, that is clear resistance. But to be shooting on the set and saying, what do we do? Well, to just participate in the show and put an image and a visual to, hey, stay alert. Look at this. You're in your living room. You're safe. Now look at this and make a decision and then push back. You you uh, made a nice segue about how you saw the handmaids and you wanted to speak out to them in character. I'd love to hear more about what similarities there are between you and Aunt Lydia that you access to play the role. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I was very fortunate to um, I came from a, a, a genuinely a genuine by genuine. I mean, true believing Catholic Irish family. Plenty of love. Tons of it. Thank God. Uh, I have two aunts. Well, I only have one now. The other has has moved on to her next life. But they are Catholic sisters and Ursuline sisters. And let me tell you, well, you know this. Nuns are really smart. Mm. First of all, they're educated. I mean, okay, there are the abusing nuns, and I don't mean to um, diminish anyone's story of abuse. I'm sure there was plenty of it. There was not that in my youth. I feel like there's an there's, abuser there, in any uh, sect of people. Exactly. You're, of course, quite right. Um, and, and, and it becomes the uh, the generalized version, not fair. Um, it becomes the cliche, nuns are. Well, let me say, in my experience, these are educated women. And these are women who, who get there, out there on the streets. And they are willing and smart. Uh, so when I was growing up, the way I was educated was, look, you have a job to do, so you need to do it. Not halfway, but fully. I remember basketball practice after school, which I loved, and being dragged out of it by Mother Claude, unfortunately. <laughs> name but she was she was this and she'd say uh what was your job today and i'd say well sleeping on the floor in the classroom come on let's have a look what's that there in the corner 
And she'd say, that's not a job well done. If you want to move on to your basketball practice, this comes first. This is mm. how it works. You're not special. Just because you don't feel like it today has no meaning here. Uh, so in other words, you know, when you're putting a character together and saying, how can I connect here? It's not about absolutes. It's borrowing from time and one's imagination. And I remember that work ethic very, very clearly. And this, mm. particular, this particular nun who scared the shit out of me, pardon my language, <laughs> and I couldn't, I hated her. I think to myself, I can't stand her. This woman taught me a meaningful lesson in life that I cannot ever be grateful enough for. She was, she was also my algebra teacher, and I panicked. Things came easily in school for a while, and then algebra hit, and I just didn't get it. And it was, it was fractions. I was like, what do you mean? Well, sorry, before algebra, so we're on fractions. I just like, wait, what? I don't get it. And she took me slowly through it. And she didn't shame me because I didn't get it. She took me through. She said, you can do it. And she's also the one at the end of the school day who dragged me out of basketball practice and said, come here a minute. That's not done. So mm -hmm. it was remembering that that's Lydia's uh, work ethic, training these mm -hmm. girls to find a life of meaning. In her understanding, as warped as it may be, these were women who were living in relationships that had no future or meaning, didn't matter to them if they were married, didn't matter if they'd had an abortion. These women, and mind you, she's a very, very attached, for whatever reason, to the dogma of the church. And I can mm -hmm. imagine her teaching and being made total fun of, look at her, will ya? Oh, and her having the presence of mind and the strength to say, no, no, this is my job. And imagine those early church meetings for Gilead in the basement of some church. And Lydia saying, you want some help? I'm right here. I know students. I know young girls. I know what to do here. So count on me. I would like to shift now, if I may, Please. to your to your new film, Rebecca, which as we record this just came out today. Mazel tov to you. Ah, yay. And I have already watched it because, not only because I'm speaking with you, but because uh, it is one of my very favorite book slash movies. My mom told me to read the book when I was a teenager. And as far yeah. as I can recall, it's one of the only books that my mom and I ever bonded over because we both oh, love it oh so much. Oh my God, it's so cute. Um, I think I, as a teenager, I read it, I think, during like the worst year of my life when I was 14 and I think I really responded to the story of Rebecca um, it's based it's a movie based on a novel by Daphne du Maurier and I think I really responded to this story because to me it's about how jealousy and compare and despair and competitiveness and territoriality in women is such a cruel and specific thing. And when you're 14, I think it's really at its apex, yes, honestly. For real. <laughs> like, I don't think anybody it has spoke like a to glorious me so much. 14. And I think the interior lives of women around these specific topics are something men, honestly, I don't think that they can even begin to fathom. Um, what goes on inside of women around these topics. And it's at the core of Rebecca. I would love 
uh, to hear your thoughts on this story and your role in this story that your role to me really sets the scene so beautifully in terms of letting the viewer know what the societal norms and expectations were of the time so you can see how everything that comes afterward impacts the main character. Talk to me about making that film. Oh, first of all, uh, I, I, I completely relate to your early memories. My mother felt the same way about Rebecca. Uh, and I remember reading and thinking, what? And <laughs> the, the beauty of the writing, she's good. Uh, and, and, and you think, well, this is a love story, which I was all into at that age. I thought, yeah, let's go here. And then it gets <laughs> dark, dark, dark and scary. And to me, the, the things you just mentioned about women, the competitive nature of this, 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 and this in the story is, is to, the, the core of that, in my opinion, is never having been given a voice. And mm. so the energy which defines a human being and should define a human being in the way they live their life is snuffed out. And therefore, that energy takes many turns, which are not productive. Competitiveness, jealousy, I'll get you. Uh, you will not survive this. If you have a background with the novel like I do, um, there's something so satisfying about seeing um, someone who takes a work of literature that you really treasure and then yeah. bringing it to the screen with such care and attention yes. to detail. It really makes you feel like like someone made something very special just for that's you. That's such a good, good point. Exactly right. And I think that's what happened in this case. Ben Wheatley was just that person. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. In the intro to this interview, I mentioned that the first time I was finally able to put a name with your face was when you made the 2012 film Compliance, which I really thought was a truly remarkable film. And I, I kind of wish more people I knew had seen it because it was really something very special. The movie was based on a real life incident. And I remember reading about the incident when it happened and then being so excited to see that someone had actually made a film about it. And in, in the movie, you played a fast food restaurant manager who was called by a man. He says he's a police officer. He's conducting an active investigation. He tells you your character to detain one of her female employees at the fast food restaurant until that employee can be questioned by authorities. And um, you play this manager whose willingness to comply with increasingly disturbing demands being made over the phone to her. Um, it makes the movie a real pressure cooker of suspense and dread. And it plays out mainly in this one tiny dingy back room in this fast food restaurant. I feel like I'm going to remember how that film made me think really long and hard about my own social conditioning as a woman to be friendly and accommodating and helpful to figures in authority. I'm going to always remember the way that I interrogated that those parts of myself after watching you in that film. And I would love, love to hear you tell me anything you can about making that amazing movie in that tiny room, that tiny, intense little room. Um, anything you can tell me about it, I would love to hear. Oh, and mind you, in 13 days, let's just say Oh, that. oh my God. Uh, I, I, it was an extraordinary experience. Craig Zobel wrote that. Love him. 
uh, and directed it. Uh, he's extraordinary. Uh, here's the thing about that film. Again, the questions, was it hard to understand what that woman was doing? I said, I hate to break it to you, but not a, not a bit. Mm-mm. I was raised to defer to the church, defer to authority. Now, if you have a loving home and people who value your voice, even if you're taught defer to the church, defer to authority, there's a part of you that says, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, wait a minute here. I don't, I don't agree with that. Now, the other part of that is how, how, who are you? Meaning what's your constitution that you come into the world with? I know that there's a whole lot about how you live and who raises you, but there's also something that you come into the world with. And, and I was happy to say that in, in my case, despite the, the real push to defer to the church, et cetera, there was just a part of me that said, I don't buy it. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I don't buy it. I remember saying with my, talking to my father and, and I said, you know, this whole thing, and he was a very loving and very smart man, kind. And I said, I don't get this no premarital sex business. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and, I, and of course, I'm a teenager and I know everything. And I said, because if you don't have sex before you marry the guy, you're going to get married to have sex. And that's a terrible way to get a marriage going, yeah. isn't it? That's trash. And, and, and I remember my, Absolutely. Mother, my father saying, okay, because uh, he was always trying to like, let me try to understand this ridiculous teenager. He said, well, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate your, your uh, 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 and he's trying to find a word that he could live with. intelligence and then he said but you may not have that opinion oh and i thought wow so i guess i'll just keep my opinions to myself Mm. but now jump back to sandra in compliance if you grow up in a home where it didn't look like the mother was present when you kind of look at the backstory the father's saying listen fatty shut up i don't want to hear it i don't care i want you to earn your keep here And, you know, I don't care where you get the job, get it. And you better marry this guy because you're lucky to have a boyfriend in the first place. The message over and over, your voice doesn't matter. That voice Mm -hmm. will shut down. It will stop talking to you. And in that case, you are so vulnerable to anyone saying, excuse me, hi, I'm a police officer. Here's a woman who's running a fast food restaurant. It's Friday night. She hasn't got time for that. She's got too many, you know, the orders didn't come through. I mean, the deliveries in the morning, there's too much going on. And yet there's a voice of authority that says, listen, I need your help. And this very sick individual knew how to read her and do it in small doses, when to compliment and say, you know what? I, I, you ought to be in the police force. You're pretty sharp. And when to mm-hmm. shove her aside and slam her. I thought I could trust you. And then you, you what? He could manipulate that person, that person who did not remember that she had a voice. Mm. While I have you here, of course, I have to ask you about Law and Order. (laughs) All the different iterations of the show that you've been on. You've been on the show nine times. And if I'm not mistaken, you played a different person each time. Am I right? Yes. That's got to be some kind of record. 
does Dick Wolf just have you on speed dial? Like what is happening that no, you've been no. on the show so many times? He doesn't have me on speed dial. I mean, I, I don't know how to express how phenomenal that is for an actor to be on that show. Uh, I mean, you come to New York and you think, God, just let me get on that show. Mm-hmm. It changes your life, you know. Uh, it really does, not just as an actor, but, but but what it teaches you about acting. Because I remember one of those roles in which, oh, Dennis O'Hare, come on now. How good is that guy? Uh, oh, man. Do you, do you remember that episode where he, he... You know what? I'll tell you my favorite episode. I don't remember if that's the one or not, but you can tell me. My favorite episode that you were on was when you played social worker Louise Derning on SVU. Is that the one that you're talking about? Is that when she... She, you, she was a social worker and the episode was called Victims. It aired in 2001. And the twist at the end is so wild. It's one of those episodes where like, you get up off the couch and you start running around your couch going, whoa! Yeah. Because yeah. of your character. Uh, well, that's one of the ones I love. That's not the one I'm actually talking about at the moment, but I could talk about any one of those roles that way because... Tell me about your favorite one. Well, I have a few of them. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, remember that one where the poor woman, she just wanted a baby? Oh, oh my God. God. I think I know this one. And, and your eyes got so wet and it looked like you were going to cry, but then you didn't. But the tears were right on the top of your eyes. You know, uh, I, I snuck into, um, oh, my God, what's it called? That beautiful children's hospital on 6th Avenue. Now the main floor is a, is a school, but it's where children who are so ill uh, and so, um, not ill, excuse me, they're beautiful children of, uh, uh, with, with disabilities. And they've been, they've been uh, you know, no one's, no one's attached to them as in family. And so they're being cared for by, by you know, very, very kind people. And I snuck in there because that's where this woman supposedly had gone. And the way I was educated every time I did a Law & Order episode, uh, I can't even explain. But the one I was going to tell you with Je- Dennis O'Hare, who played a schizophrenic, remember, and he had murdered people. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Boy, is he good. And I remember this odd feeling of um, disinterest in the episode. I'm playing his sister in it. And I thought, wait a minute, what's happening here? I've never felt this before. Why? Whoa, what's going on? And I thought to myself, uh, this, is a, since, this is a problem. And so I forced myself to go to set before I was shooting a couple of days before. I still could not get it going. And I thought, what am I going to do? And then I showed up to shoot the first part of it. And I'm sitting there with my brother, Dennis, and we start to talk about the circumstance, and I completely, totally broke down. And then I realized, okay, Anne, this character was giving you clues from the very beginning. She does not want to be involved. Mm. And she shuts out everything she can, and it hit me while we were shooting, for which I, I bow down in gratitude. And the uh, so that just knocked me out the the significance of those roles and that experience. It really seems to me, as a fan, obviously of all the shows, that when they get a script where they need someone just for that one episode to do some real emotional heavy lifting, 
that they're like, get in down. You can just hear them saying it because you are in all of those episodes. It's always I don't know how I got so lucky, but you know that one, the scary one where the, she's the mother of a serial killer. Who's her son. Her son is a serial killer and Mm -hmm. she protected him all her life. And then we go to shoot it. And you know how you usually do the wide first, you know, so everybody gets their bearings. Yeah. Where I'm on the stand and. You're like right on your face. Well, now we're doing the wide. So no one's worried. <laughs> the actor, let's say. And, 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 then, and then the line was, a mother always knows. <sighs> and I was the mother of a young child. I am the mother of a young, well, he's not young now. A child with disabilities. And so I got the phrase out of my mouth, a mother always knows, and I fully broke down. That was it. Wow. So the director said, so we're going to shoot. We're, we're going to do the wide later. We're going to shoot this now. I was very grateful for that. And the other one, I mean, I loved every one of them. Marishka Hargitay, uh, 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 Chris, oh, my God. They're so good and so kind and so devoted. Um Chris did an episode of, of Handmaid's Tale, several of them. Yes, he did. Oh, he was the president. I love him. Yeah, that was hot. Um, the last one I wanted to just mention was the one where the, the, the pediatric oncologist. Yes. Remember that one? And uh, yeah. And and I went, they let me in to, to, to uh, what's the hospital in New York, the cancer hospital? Oh, oh Sloan Kettering. Thank you. Sorry, Brain. Uh, they allowed me to come in and go to the floor of the pediatric oncology, this and that. And I was so, I said, I, I don't know how you let me in. I'm so grateful. She said, well, we want you to get it right. I, thought, I mean, brilliant. And I remember talking to a doctor there who had a pen with a panda bear on the top of it. And I said, how do you get, because so many children die, so many, so many. And I said, how do you, how do you get through it? And he said, well, we concentrate, we celebrate the small victories. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we got him to Thanksgiving with his family. Oh, my gosh. Oh, and then you just say, okay, uh, what? And then in that area where the children receive their medication, their chemo, every single culture was represented in that room in unity. The Hasidim, mm. the African-American the Latino, every community, their children were suffering and it brought everybody together without judgment. That whole experience and then reading uh, Kubler-Ross. On death and dying. And, you know, they said that that episode was based on Kubler-Ross. Oh, wow. Which was like, whoa. So I read a lot of it. That woman is something else. And she said, you know, if, if you have cleared and dealt with and experienced the grief of your own personal loss and you are called to the field of, say, pediatric oncology, you can do it every single day. However, if you have not sorted out your past and felt the grief of your past, mm. you cannot. Yeah. And the character mm. I played there, remember her sister died of leukemia? Yeah. She said, I don't care what it takes. I will serve these children. No, no, no. He hadn't done her work. Anyway, mm. what, the point being in all of those experiences of old, uh, of old, 
of uh, of that wonderful show of Law and Order, the Mothership, SBU, uh, um, uh, the other one too. Criminal Intent, oh, you were on. Yeah, all of them. It just privileges everyone, every one of them. You know, something you mentioned before that I wanted to get back to you, um, that maybe not all of your Handmaid's Tale fans knew was that Margaret Atwood wrote a sequel to Handmaid's Tale called The Testaments. It came out last year. The book is set 15 years after the events of The Handmaid's Tale, and it's narrated by Aunt Lydia and a woman named Agnes living in Gilead and a young woman named Daisy living in Canada. And I told you before when you mentioned it that I had read it, but that is actually a lie. I did not read it. I <laughs> listened to the audiobook version, and in the audiobook version, and Dowd, you read all of the chapters narrated by Aunt Lydia, and it is seriously and honestly my favorite audiobook performance of all oh time. Oh my God. I have Thank such you. clear memories of finding out Aunt Lydia's secret truth, which I will not reveal on the microphone, but I found it out because you revealed it while I was walking to the bus office from the subway, and I had to stop walking because I was so absorbed. I like almost crashed into someone. Oh I had to God. pull my body over because I was so enthralled and shocked and amazed. And the the book is amazing. The performance on it is the best audiobook performance I've ever heard. And I need oh. to know, are there plans to make a movie of that book with you as the star? Who do I need to talk to about it? Who do I need to petition because I need to see it so badly. Okay, here's here's what I know, and it's, there's no facts behind this because no okay. one has said this is what's happening. What I have but. heard. So let's go to rumor here. And in other words, you can quote me, but it isn't uh, a fact. It's, <laughs> okay, it's going to follow Handmaid's Tale. Oh my god! As a show or a movie? Show. Oh. Oh my god! <gasps> it's so good. It's so good. And you're the star. I just have one final question, which is the final question I ask all of our guests on this show. And that question is, what you watching? And when I ask what you watching, it is a broad question. I'm asking about television, movies, books, music, music videos, podcasts, anything pop cultural that you are consuming we want to know about it because it is probably very cool and out what you're watching. Okay. So just the preface there would be, uh, I did not start to start watching television until this summer. What? Wow. I, I, because I never understood how people had time. That's oh yeah. I honestly, you got the coronavirus. So you got all the time, you know, and then suddenly, Oh, lots of time. Um, mm. so, 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 my daughter recommended uh, Dead to Me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my husband and I, that's the first time I've ever watched a show. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm really embarrassed. So this is, I'm just outing this now, so I, I'll, I'm full of shame about it. It's so cute, though. But I'm going to get over it. I'm kind of in love with this. We started to watch Shit's Creek. I was like, whoa. So funny. Okay. The performances. Come on now. What? Uh Oh my God. I mean, that, okay, next show, which I'm not over yet, is Fauda. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay, get to it. Uh, Netflix, Fauda, F A U D A. It's Palestine, Israel. Uh, uh-huh. And 
uh, 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 I, I don't have words for that. I swear to God. Now, the other thing I started to watch and I loved was Messiah. I haven't seen that either. Okay. The, 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 I'm telling you, there's something going on there. And okay. my friend, Reed Bernie, my love, is in a film called 40-Year-Old Version. Oh, I've heard that's very good. Okay. That's just, I mean, I watched that today. Come on now, you know. You know what the other thing, and this sounds kind of like, okay, get over yourself. Uh, read, read, read. What are you reading? Oh, I'm reading Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Now that sounds grim, but it's flipping brilliant. Okay, here's the author. Her name is Olga, and I'll spell the last name. T-O-K-A-R-C-Z-U-K. And it, she won Tokarska? Uh, yeah, Tokarska. Very good. Yes. Well, I'm so, so thrilled that you came on our show. As I'm sure you can tell, I've admired your work for such a long time, and it was thrilling to speak with you. To, to, to respond to what you said, I'm very grateful to you for having me on the show and uh, for letting me talk. Thank you. You're a delight. You're the best, Ann Dowd. Thank you again so much. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when Callie and I come back, I'm going to ask Callie and Callie's going to ask me what you, what you watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes, and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have dockets. We docket. all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams. I'm Caitlin I'm Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which Amazing. so smart. I mean, so like smart. To, I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Kelly. 
Now, at this part of the program, I ask you, because I've got to know, and I need to know, what you watching. Ooh, well, you know, uh, the election. <laughs> That's all any of us are watching, the election. We've been watching it since Tuesday, and we're still watching it. Very the, as we're recording this now, it is election week. Yeah. And it is Thursday of election week, and we still don't know who won. It's uh, very stressful. Yeah, those of us in the future listening to us, did we win? It is so slow. It is agonizing slow. Besides that, um, I saw Frida Got a Gun. Oh, big Frida's movie. Oh, my God. It was so sad, but it was really, really good. I cried from, like, the beginning. But it it was... It's an emotional... But it's also very uplifting. It's, you know, it's Big Frida. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, poignant, but not, you know, like she still smiles through pain. You know. Legend. Yeah, what platform is that on? Um, Peacock, maybe? Peacock. It was Peacock, yeah. And then I saw Pumpkinhead. I had always assumed I'd seen Pumpkinhead, but I guess I never saw Pumpkinhead. That's a Halloween horror movie. Yeah, from 1988. Oh, 88, the golden age of horror. Highly overlooked witch in pop culture. Nobody ever talks about the uh, the Pumpkinhead witch. She's amazing. So creepy. I may be here next year for Halloween. Oh, brilliant. And the movie still holds up. It was still really, really good. I love it. Um, That's awesome. And then I saw the Black Christmas remake from 2019. You know what? That was one of... Yeah, that was like... I, I saw that the day that it came out and I thought that it had promise, but that it seemed like a first draft or a second draft of something that needed three or four drafts. I think you had told me, I think I had seen the other remake. So I think I was just thinking of that one. There was like uh-huh. one in 2000 something six, maybe. But anyway, Black mm-hmm. Christmas is a remake of 1974. So I'm going to take it back. It was good. I liked the um, uh, the musical number at the beginning, mm-hmm. which a lot of people thought was terrible. I liked it. The reviews for this movie are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the reviews were trash. But, you know, it was like not a lot of gore. It was like a teen horror movie with a little feminism tossed in. Yeah, just a sousson of feminism, if you will. Yeah, I wasn't mad about it. You're getting in the holiday spirit. Yeah. The Halloween spirit. I'm running out of horror movies, so, you know, I have to go Christmas horror now. <laughs> and, uh, and then The Masked Singer, obviously, still. Obviously, The Masked Singer. Yeah. There's some what, note hitters. What happened on the most recent episode? Who was, who was competing? Well, there was The Mushroom that has the Yes, The voice. Mushroom. Who is The Mushroom? That costume. It, that costume is totally like our boss, Lori Hensel at Bust Magazine. She has this amazing mushroom, co- mushroom costume that she trots out on Halloween, and it looks kind of like the mushroom on The Mass Singer. I love the mushroom's voice. Cannot tell the gender of the mushroom. It's I think fa- it's Some a, falsetto realness. I think it's a guy. I think it's a guy, too. And there were so many Hamilton clues. I couldn't tell if that's because the person's from is Hamilton. Is this your Mass Singer notebook? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not sure if I can find where I, oh yeah, I think that Broccoli is Dan Aykroyd. Oh. And I, 
I knew I'm not going to be a spoiler, but I knew who the lips were. Like oh, I told you second. at the very beginning that the lips were going to be Countess Luanne de Lesseps, and it was not that person. Um, but they did have a New York accent, which is why I thought it was. And when, as soon as lips actually started singing for half a second, I knew exactly oh, the, who from, it was. From the very, very moment the mouth opened, but also uh, the fact that lips sat down the entire time. <laughs> Why can't the lips stand? Is are, is lips injured in some way? No, but the, just the person that lips ended up being to me is a person that's always like, I'm sitting down. Is a sitter. That's yeah. a hard sit. <laughs> that was a very funny performance. I'm not surprised that we have already discovered the true identity of lips. Um, <laughs> but I was wrong in my confident assertion about who it was. But then as soon as that person started singing i knew who it was before they were unmasked so good good on both of us <laughs> and what have you been watching oh thank you so much for asking uh like you i've been watching the election mm-hmm. um i watched stephen colbert's election special on showtime how was that it was fun watching him drink and swear in a way that he's not allowed to do on cbs and he had a bunch of cool celebs on there like making cameos like rupaul and neil degrasse tyson and stuff like that but the jokes were not up to his usual standard i felt it seemed very improvised and not in a good way well probably because Um, you probably have to have you don't know where it's going so you probably have backup jokes lines of different jokes that go different ways yeah it it was an experiment, and I don't think it was a, a very successful one, but it was a live show, and it it kept things light when I was feeling very freaked out. Uh, for the record, I'm still very freaked out, mm-hmm. but uh, we shall see what happens. For actual news coverage, that's not comedy. I've spent the last few days watching ABC News, MSNBC, and CNN, and the Daily Podcast from the New York Times. I also watched been- Fox in there. And they you watched Fox. Yeah, they called um, with uh, was it Arizona before the rest, and I was like, why? Is... Fox was interesting. Right. It was an interesting watch, and it was interesting watch watching people freak out. Are they freaking out? Yeah, and they're also freaking out about Trump, like um, contesting, and because they their thing is vote all the counts. So then they're like, oh god, don't say Wait, don't count all the votes. You mean yeah, vote all the, yeah, vote count all the votes. And then, you know, he's trying to be like, stop counting over here. Stop counting over there. And they're like, oh, Trump, we have a message we're trying to deliver. Yeah, I mean, he was on Twitter today with just like all caps saying, stop the count. He's a maniac. (sighs) What a jerk. And then there was, you know, wingnuts outside of these centers where all of these dedicated people are very carefully counting every vote. What were they like rallying outside trying to tell them to stop counting people's votes? What's wrong with people? I don't know what's wrong with people. But um, when I was not watching that, I was watching um, this show on Netflix that I really love called The Haunting of Bly Manor. It's so scary. I love things about big, giant um, houses that are haunted and old. And this one is actually um, based on a Henry James novel that I really love called turn of the screw about creepy little kids (laughs) and their governess. So this is loosely based on Henry James's turn of the screw and it's made by the same person 
Mike Flanagan, who did that amazing Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House, that was based on that Shirley Jackson novel that I love so much. So he's just like hitting all of my favorite haunting novels and turning them into Netflix series. And I am here for it. I tried Haunting of Hill House and I thought it was very, very slow. It's supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I'm no dark shadows. <laughs> yeah. For me, as far as I'm concerned, the slower, the better. Like haunting things are all about atmosphere to me, but there's really, there's legitimate jump scares and like really like the ghosts in this series, the haunting of blind manor are very, very scary. Oh, okay. Um, the, in this one, the it's about a young governess and she's hired by this guy in England to look after his niece and nephew at the family country house um, after the niece and nephew are orphaned. And she's just there living in this huge estate and like all these different apparitions that like there are multiple ghosts. It's not like one scary ghost. It is a, a legion of ghosts. Oh. And it's great. All right. I also, because of the bad influence of our fellow editor, Lydia Wang, I have been watching season 16 of The Bachelorette. <laughs> And um, there's this woman, Claire Crawley, on there who's interesting. I have not seen her before, but apparently um, members of Bachelor Nation are very familiar with her. She is the oldest bachelorette ever. She's 39. I think I saw a commercial for this. Uh-huh. And she is a hairstylist from Sacramento. And the series was supposed to come out. Okay. I think in the commercial, the guy yells, I didn't expect this from the oldest bachelorette. The oldest bachelorette yeah they're literally like treating her like she's collecting social security because she's 39 but (laughs) anyway so like because of covid all of these gentlemen had to really undergo like so much quarantining like multiple weeks of quarantining to leading up to going there and then when they decided to go ahead with it then they had to quarantine some more once they got there and so we're talking i think just like over a month of them being totally isolated from the rest of the world before they even started shooting the show and then like all this testing every single day so they can shoot the show and basically what has been happening is there's like on the first episode like 30 guys get out of limos one at a time And she like chit chats with them for like a minute or two. And during that experience, she fell in love at first sight with a dude named Dale. I think his name is Dale. Um, And she is obsessed with Dale. And like she's going through the motions of going on dates with these other guys and like going on group dates and like doing stuff. But everybody is aware of the fact that she's just has a boner for Dale and Dale's like, <laughs> she only has eyes for me, you bitches. And then like, so everybody else has been like quarantining forever and they're pissed cause they're, they're not even getting a chance to like impress this girl. She just like is hung up on this one dude and she doesn't really care about anybody else. Oh, and you like and them, so you like there's them. like a bachelor revolt underway. And I, they've been teasing the fact that, like basically they're just going to switch up bachelorettes like a couple of episodes, like two or three episodes in. And so like this girl, Tasha, who was on bachelor in paradise last year is going to show up sooner rather than later to replace her. Well, because... she's still got her quarantine. So they're probably. 
right there. Why waste all these fully vetted quarantine dudes on someone who's not interested in it? She's going to have to quarantine, so it's going to take at least long enough for her to. Well, I think they. I think they've been working on it because <laughs> things weren't going well. I don't, I don't know the specifics of it. I've been avoiding um, Lydia's go-to guy for bachelorette gossip reality, Steve, because apparently he's just full of spoilers and he knows everything that's going to happen with everybody already. So I've been avoiding reality, Steve, so I can still enjoy the show. It's terrible. And I like it. I like all these guys vying for the girl much better than I like a whole house of women vying for one guy. I, I definitely like the reverse much more. And that is what I've been watching, except the last thing I've been watching is the majestic pop tarts, Patreon page. Yes. Do, 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 do. It's in the world and it is great. We really need your help to keep bust alive and hopefully you'll be excited all the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Pop-Tarts podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all of our episodes. And we've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there that you won't find anywhere else like the amazing episode we did with big frida this week this past week i went to the bust office to send off care packages to our most generous patreon donors who are actually matreons because they're women and um there's so many more enticements on there for you to check out so please visit patreon.com slash pop tarts podcast and consider sponsoring this show finally I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And of course, as always, our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try. No, no, no. You can email us both. I'm at Emily Rems at Bust.com. Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. We super duper appreciate it. Until next time. We have a message. We have a message. The mothership. The mothership. The mothership. And you're the star. We have a message. We're trying. The mothership. The mothership. We have a message. We're trying. And you're the star. The mothership. The mothership. And you're the star.